it's a great week this week. I uh, had, had something happen to me that um, <laughs> I wasn't quite prepared for. Uh, so Tuesday night was uh, Schlen, uh High School Baseball's team's last home game. And um, Ethan, who you saw up here playing the electric guitar, um, is a senior on that baseball team. And so it, that was the last home games are what we call senior night for the parents who have ever experienced that. You know, I wasn't, you know, ready for that. And Christy was, like, doing great and, like, oh, this is fun and going to take pictures and, like, getting with our kids. And this is a lot of great. And I'm, like, like getting emotional. And I uh, walk out there on the field, take pictures with Ethan. And then uh, the part that really got home to me was when he, um, our team went to take the field to begin the game and watching Ethan sprint out to, to right field and knowing that that would be the last time he takes the home field beginning of a game. Changes in life are, can be hard. It's my first one getting ready to launch to college. He's headed off to the University of Idaho this fall to pursue electrical engineering. And uh, these changes that we face as we live out the Christian faith, as we live out our daily lives, create challenges for us, can check our hearts, and really clearly point to what we identify ourselves with. This morning, as we, thank you so much, Kathy, for reading the text this morning. Some of those names were, were a bit tricky, but you did a great job. Thank you. Thank you very much. The text this morning, we are gonna, we're reading as we've left the Passover now, and we've left the, what had, took place to the Egyptians during that night, and the Israelites are now released and moving forward. And if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, um, we really want you to have a Bible in your lap or on, your, on an app or in your lap or reading along. Um, and so please raise your hand and we'll get a Bible to you and hand that out. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Students of God's word, that's, that's a command for all of us who are children of God. So as we look at the word this morning, you know, we're, we're making this transition. And before we get started, I just want to go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word Thank you that all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, um, is without error, that it is consistent, that it teaches us how to love you, it teaches us about the gospel, it teaches us how to live the gospel, it teaches us how to be in relationship with you. So Father, I pray that as we study this this morning, it wouldn't just be um, something that took place in the past, but has relevant, relevant life-changing impact on us today. In Jesus' name we pray, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. How many of you have heard of Corey Ten Boom? Okay. Are, are probably the people who are above 35, 40 have raising their hand. The rest of you probably haven't. Um, um, last week we talked about, you know, we're kind of not doing a great job of remembering. Well, Corey Ten Boom is one of those people that is worth remembering. I'd like to read a little bit from who she is and an excerpt from The Hiding Place, the book she wrote. Corey Ten Boom and her family lived in Harlem, Holland. They were devoted Christians who dedicated their lives in service to their fellow man. Their home was always an open house for anyone in need. Through the decades, the Ten Booms were very active in social work in Harlem, and their faith inspired them to serve the religious community and society at large. During the Second World War, the Ten Boom home became a refuge, a hiding place for fugitives and those hunted by the Nazis. By protecting these people, Casper and his daughters, Corey and Betsy, risked their lives. This nonviolent resistance against the Nazi oppressors was the Ten Boom's way of living out their Christian faith. This faith led them to hide Jews, students who refused to cooperate with the Nazis, and members of the Dutch underground resistance movement. During 1943 and into 1944, there were usually six to seven people illegally living in this home. Four Jews and two or three members of the Dutch underground. Additional refugees would stay with the Tembooms for a few hours or a few days until another safe house could be located for them. Corey became a ringleader within the network of the Harlem Underground. Corey and the BG group 
would search for courageous Dutch families who had taken refugees, and much of Corey's time was spent caring for these people once they were in hiding. Through these activities, the Ten Boon family and their many friends saved the lives of an estimated 800 Jews and protected many Dutch underground workers. However, on February 28, 1944, this family was betrayed and the, and the Gestapo, which are the Nazi secret police, raided their home. The Gestapo set a trap and waited throughout the day, seizing everyone who came to the house. By evening, about 30 people had been taken into custody. Casper, Corey, and Betsy were arrested. Corey's brother, William, sister, Nolly, and, and nephew, Peter, were also arrested and taken to prison. December 16, 1944, Betsy, Corey's sister, died in captivity. However, Corey, due to a clerical error, was released 14 days later. One week after Corey's release, all the women who were her age in the camp were taken to the gas chamber and killed. Listen to Corey's own words regarding her release. The next morning, the doctor on duty at the clinic stamped the medical approval on my discharge form. Events that had dragged so slowly now moved with bewildering speed. In a dressing shed near the outer gate of the camp, I was outfitted with clothes, underthings, a woolen skirt, a truly beautiful silk blouse, sturdy, almost new shoes, a hat, and an overcoat. I was handed a form to sign stating that I had never been ill at Ravensbrook, never had an accident, and that the treatment had been good. I signed. In another building, I received a day's bread, ration, and food coupons for three additional days. I was also given back my watch, my Dutch money, and my mama's ring. And then I was standing with a group of 10 or 12 just inside the gate. The heavy iron doors swung open. At the heels of a woman guard, we marched through. We climbed the little hill, and now I could see the lake frozen from shore to shore. The pines and the distant church steeple sparkled in the winter sun like an old-fashioned Christmas card. I could not believe it. Perhaps we were only going to the Siemens factory, and tonight we would march back to the camp. But at the top of the hill, we turned left toward the center of the small town. I could feel my feet swelling in the tight new shoes, but I bit my lip and made myself stride along. I imagined the guard turning around at any moment, pointing a scornful finger at me. Edema, send her back to camp. At the small train station, the guard turned and left us without a backward glance. Apparently, we were all traveling as far as Berlin and then each pursuing her separate route home. There was a long wait on a cold iron bench. It was New Year's Day, 1945. Betsy had been right. She and I were out of prison. I think most of us would agree that Corey Tenboom did not deserve to go to jail, did not deserve to go to that concentration camp. She was protecting the innocent. She was watching over the Jews that were being rounded up and slaughtered. She was protecting the innocent lives of the Dutch underground people who were trying to help others. And she was arrested 
brutally sent to a concentration camp for her efforts. Yet in that concentration camp, instead of becoming a bitter, hard-hearted person, her and Betsy smuggled in a small Bible, and they held church every single night. They would read from the scriptures in quiet, and many people came to believe in Jesus Christ because they were present. Yet as they were going through all those days, they endured extreme suffering, extreme malnutrition, to the point that Corey's sister Betsy died. Could you imagine the scars and the ache of her heart? Yes, she was free, but who would she be now that she was free? I think the same question could be asked of the Israelite people. God was setting them free, but who will they be? Who would they be after God did all those wonderful miracles and demonstrating his power and his authority, not just over the Egyptian people, but their, their gods, and demonstrating that he was the one true God for the Israelite people, and he has ushered them out of Egypt? Would the Israelites be able to overcome the scars, the heartache of being treated less than human, whipped, scorned? mocked, having their babies taken from them and thrown into the Nile? Was it such a great heartache and hurt and pain and so much to endure that they could never, ever overcome that and never, ever be a truly free people? Who would they be? This morning, as we look at these texts, we're going to see three different identity changes for the people of Israel that are essential, and I would say essential for us as well. The first identity change that we're going to see, go ahead and go to the next slide, is that the Israelites went from slaves to conquerors. Look here at the beginning of Exodus chapter 12, excuse me, the reading in Exodus 12 verse 33 the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. The, this idea and this understanding goes back to what God already told Moses. Remember God told Moses at the burning bush that I'm going to send you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And the end result will be Pharaoh isn't just going to let them go. He's going to command them to leave. And this isn't going to be this passive, like, oh, you can go now, but this get out of my country. Now, why are the Egyptians so excited to see the Israelites leave? Well, <laughs> Egypt is laid in ruin right now. In fact, the, the previous, before the final plague took place, Pharaoh's advisors came to him and said, get these people out of here. If you don't get them out of here soon, there's going to be nothing left of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He was happy to harden it. And it cost Egypt the lives of the firstborn sons. Then Pharaoh yielded to God's will and released, pushed out the Israelite people. But it's very interesting the way in which they were pushed out. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls bound up, and their cloaks and on their shoulders. How many cooks we got in here? Right? Ideal, like, sanitary way to, like, have a meal, right? You got your dough that's kind of get kind of shoved in a bowl. We're going to kind of hopefully throw a cloth around that and then throw it over our shoulder, okay? And cook it along the way. That, that's what they're doing. They're being shoved out this quickly, but God knew this. So God tell them, don't you put leaven in your, in your bread. Because you don't have time for it to rise and cook. You're just going to have to cook it, smooth it out on a nice hot rock along the way, and eat it on your going. That's what you're going to have time for, because you're going to be shoved out of the nation of Egypt. You're going to be pushed out. Verse 35, and the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and so that 
so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. What great imagery here. A people who were once slaves, beaten down, horribly treated, are walking out of Egypt as conquerors. So that's the first identity shift we see for the Egyptians, for the Israelite people. They, for a very long time, we read when Kathy read it this morning, 430 years of slavery. Generation after generation after generation after generation born into slavery. That's what they knew. Their identity was a slave. Their worth was as a slave. Now, we can't really fathom that, can we? Most of us in this room were not born into that situation. But that's what the Israelites knew. So their identity was a slave. And God has got to move that identity from being a slave to being a conqueror. So what does he do for them? He has them go to their neighbors and say, I need your gold. I need your silver. And it wasn't a stick up. I mean, it wasn't like they're walking over there with, we're going to, in a gang of people. It's just literally they're going to their neighbor. I need all your best clothing. I need all your best silver. And I need all your best gold. And they gave it to them. It'd be kind of crazy. You know, what if one of some of you were like, God's called me to leave my home or wherever you live. If you're visiting with us this morning from, from Seattle, God's saying, I want you to leave Seattle, but before you leave, um, and I want you to pursue what I'm going to do over here, but before you leave, I want you to go over to your neighbor who's got that really cool Ferrari and the Porsche and that really nice house and that really nice, you know, all his, his, his retirement plan. Go get his retirement plan, okay? And so you walk over next door and say, hey, God told me to come ask you for your retirement plan, your Porsche, your Ferrari, and all your gold, okay? And any silver you might have. And those, those really cool earrings you're wearing right now, I need those too. And they just give it to you. I mean, that's what's taking place. The people who were once slaves are now conquerors. And it's not based upon what the Israelites did. It's all based upon what God did in demonstrating to the Israelites and to the Egyptians by his power and his might. He, all of a sudden now, instead of being slaves, they're not walking out slaves, they're walking out conquerors. They just went to their neighbors and took on, plundered them and they're leaving out. How did this just happen? I'm not a slave anymore. I'm now free. I'm now a conqueror. And I think today as we look at it and we understand this context, we understand that when Jesus walked out of that grave, when, when we sing that song, Glorious Day, I walked out of that grave, we understand what Jesus Christ did. And it was really cool. It's like we would just come off Easter and Good Friday and we had a wonderful time together celebrating God. And we saw the power and the might of the resurrection. We saw 10 people get baptized. That was amazing. Amen. 10 people. And they're coming up out of that water and a visual representation of new life coming up out of that grave, right? Buried in the death, raised in life, right? Oh, awesome picture of what God has given to us and what God has done for us. Well, when God brought us up out of that grave, he just didn't make us free. He made us conquerors. And I think sometimes we stop at the free point. Oh, I'm free, but I'm not really a conqueror because that sin, that hurt, what happened to me back then, I'll never get over it. I'll never leave it. I'll always desire it. And so we aren't ever truly free because we don't ever go from being slaves to conquerors. And again, I, there's a lot of great books out there, you know, the 10 steps to freedom and whatever, you know, the 10, five steps to highly effective marriages, whatever, you know, good books. I'm not knocking the books, right? But let me tell you something. The reason that we can be conquerors this morning is not because of us, but it's because of what Christ did for us. When we look to have freedom from slavery to sin, to hurts, to things that are destroying our lives, it's because of what Christ did, not because of what we're gonna do. And I fear for people who go through a program or read a book and they come say, look what I did. I've healed my own heart. I've set the boundaries I've got to have and I've taken care of me. I want to scream like red, like alarms are going off. It's like a five alarm fire going off in my head, right? Because I'm going, if it's not in Jesus, it won't last. Or you'll begin to idolize and worship yourself. Because you'll say, look what I've done instead of look what Jesus did for me and I'm holding to his truth. 
God wants us to be more than conquerors. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8, beautiful passage of scripture. Um, Or just listen, read along. In the New Testament, if you turn to Matthew, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospels, Acts, the book of history, and then Romans, okay? And in Romans chapter 8, What shall we say to these things, starting in verse 31, Romans 8, 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If you write in your Bibles, you're cool with that. I want you, there's a no right here in verse 36. Put an exclamation point after that no, like maybe five, maybe 10, if you can fit them in there, okay? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How are we conquerors? Through Jesus. You know, last couple weeks, we talked about Jesus as the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, the Lamb that fulfilled the Passover. And because of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, this victory is permanent. Do we believe it? Do we believe that what God accomplished on behalf of us is permanent victory? Or are we still identifying ourselves as a person who struggled with, with money problems or a person who, who struggled with, uh, who's been abused? Or do we struggle with a person who has sexual addictions? Or do we, what are we identifying ourselves with? What is it that we identify as? You gotta understand, Christ died so that we might be set free and be conquering those things and live in true freedom with him. As we watch the Israelite people travel through the wilderness, this is going to be a concept they're going to wrestle with. And I'm telling you today, bad news, you're not going to get over this today. You're going to spend the rest of your life living this truth out. But you've got to understand what Jesus Christ did. He did so that you can be a conqueror and not remain in the things that hinder us and hold us back. First identity is that we are no longer slaves, but we are conquerors. The second identity is, is, is this wonderful piece, and you may have just skimmed over it, because let's be honest, when scriptures start talking about numbers, or he beget and they beget, we kind of, our eyes roll back, we gloss over, and we catch on to the, when the story begins again, right? This is really important. When here in chapter 12, starting in verse 37, he says, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 600 thousand men on foot to just we got to ponder that for a second okay to just let that sit in your mind a little bit okay i've been part of some pretty large parades um we've been part of runs battalion runs or what's really crazy is pam division runs right the most painful thing in the world the accordion effect everybody starts out really fast and you find yourself sprinting trying to keep up and then the accordion effect hits bam and the guy in front of you just stops and you're just like trying not to run him over as you're hitting the brakes and you've got like two to three thousand people out running a fort at the same time and it's like controlled chaos right not six hundred thousand just men walking out now, what you got to understand, when, when, Ju- when Jacob and his family came to Israel, maybe there was 100. Maybe. You had Jacob and his 12 sons, remember? And Joseph was already there with his family. And Jacob brought his family to, to Egypt because there was a famine in the land, and they stayed there. God took a hundred and made it 600,000 men plus women and children 
during times of peace and prosperity? No. During 430 years of slavery. God took the nation of Israel and multiplied them in the midst of persecution and hardship. That's not what the Israelites would have asked for. But God knew what they needed so that they would grow and multiply. 600,000 men plus women and children. And our God is a missional God. Our God is about reaching the world. And so God is going to do, as he demonstrates his power to the Egyptians and Israelites, other peoples are going to see and believe. And look what it says in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with him and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, this is crazy because when the Israelites are massive procession out of Egypt, this, this procession would have taken several days for all the Israelites to completely get out of the land, all right? There's, they're starting to march out, be let out, and everybody's getting in line and leaving out of Egypt. Well, what's crazy is they're heading out. There's this bleeding of sheep. There's this mooing of cattle, right? There's these goats that are nipping at people, right, as they're going out. Gotta love goats, right? They're all being let out. And all this noise and ruskus as the people are out. But when they're gone, there's utter silence in the land of Egypt. Because what did we read? The animals that are left in Egypt are all dead. Life just walked out of Egypt. What a procession. The conquering people has just left. And this I would even change this. The more I think about this, instead of from the few to the many, I would change this from the weak to the strong. Because the Israelites, in their mind, they were the weak ones, right? They were the slaves. And God is going to show them, look at your numbers. Take a look at you. The weak, the few have become the many and the strong, the mighty. Everything that Pharaoh feared would happen, happened, despite Pharaoh's actions. More than conquerors. Have you ever felt like the weak or the few? Have you ever in your life as you're trying to live out the Christian faith in a world that is telling you to abandon it or telling you that you're trying something that's hopeless, you feel weak? I mean, David did. I remember David crying out in the psalm saying, God, there's enemies on my left, there's enemies on my right, there's an enemy in front of me, there's enemies behind. Where are you, God? I'm feeling weak, I'm feeling, I mean, my body, I love some of the language that he uses, my bones or my muscles are just wasting away, I'm becoming just a worthless heap of bones. You ever felt that way? You ever identified yourself as that? You see, What God did for the nation of Israel, he has done for us. See, that's why the church family is so important. Because when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we get a look around the room and we discover we're not the few. And what's crazy is there's other churches going on on all throughout this state that are worshiping Jesus right now with us. And then not just in this state, but in this nation and in this world And there are places in China that are underground in the Middle East where they can't even sing a word. They're just silently gathering together and silently reading scripture together, but they can't say a word because if they speak up, they're going to be dead. But they're praising Jesus, right? We got missionaries that are overseas that are praying for us in Sri Lanka. We have people that support this body, not just monetarily, but with prayer and love and encouragement that live all throughout this nation. It's crazy. Do you know you're being prayed for like that? That you're not the few. You're part of the mighty kingdom of God. If you're a child of God this morning, you are not the few. You are not the weak because of what Christ has done drawing his church together, his bride together in him. So the next person that tells you the church is insignificant or meaningless, let me tell you something. It's essential. The gathering together of the saints is essential for us to understand that our identity is not the weak, but it's the many and it's the strong in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 12, 
I always got a pre, prelude. I know people read from Hebrews 12 a lot, the verses 1 and 2, but they, you've got to talk about Hebrews 11 before you can talk about Hebrews 12, so I'm going to briefly do so because I don't want you to hear it until 2 o'clock, right? So Hebrews 11 is the hero chapter, the heroine chapter. You've got people of faith, amazing people of faith who've acted in obedience from God for a long time ago, all the way through the time of Jesus. I mean, it's, it's awesome to see all these people who acted in obedience to God, right? And Hebrews 12 says, therefore, a little thing that pastors tend to say, when you see a therefore in scripture, you need to ask, what's it there for, okay? It's referring us back to Hebrews 11, okay? It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, why do we get here and sing these upbeat, ruckus, fun songs about Jesus? Because we want your eardrums to hurt. No, not really, Okay. Because we just want to get, well, let me tell you what. So we can be reminded. We need to be reminded, don't we? Who we are in Christ Jesus. I love Sunday. I love it. And not just because I get paid for it, okay? I love it. I, I told Christy, I, I, don't, I couldn't do anything else. I love seeing the saints gather together and worship Jesus. Glenn does too. Glenn just, he's like, you'll notice Glenn. Every once in a while, he'll just step away from the mic just so he could hear you sing. To praise God, to be reminded we are not the few. We are the mighty in Jesus Christ. And as we praise his name, we are reminded where that power and that might comes from. Why do you think the Israelites wrote songs? We're going to read, us, read about a song in Exodus 15 that they wrote that about the things of leaving out of Egypt. To remind them that they are part of the mighty. The final thing that we're going to look at this morning, the final identity shift that takes place is found at the closing of 1240. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That word hosts, if you want to circle that, that word means, a, that's a military term for like a parade a conquering army. Host is like saying army. They walked out as an army. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. And moving over to chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines that was near. For God said, Let's the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. I want to pause here for a second. God is such a gracious, loving, merciful, and good God. I know we go through times in our lives, and we face times in our lives when we feel like we can't take it. We can't make it. It hurts too much. But God is always present with us, taking through us through exactly what we need to go through so that we will grow up in him. And sometimes it's this, I'm not going to take you through that because you can't handle it. And that's exactly what he's doing for the nation of Israel right here. We could go through the Philistine area. It's a shorter trip. We can make it's a great shortcut, but your hearts aren't ready for war. Now we're going to see a minute their armament's ready, but their hearts aren't ready for it because if they face war and they see death and they see bloodshed, they're going to go, about face, back to Egypt. God is being merciful and he's being gracious by taking them through exactly what they need to do. So guess what he's going to do? He's going to take them a longer route. But in that longer route, they're going to discover who God is and their need and their necessity to rely on him. Sometimes, folks, God takes us the longer route. Sometimes we need to go the longer route so that we can understand who God is, so that we can lean into him, so that we can trust him. I know there's stories in this room where 
God, I would have loved to have had a house sooner. God, I would have loved to have had that job sooner. God, I would love to have those, that relationship with that wonderful person sooner. But God had to take us a little bit longer out. So when he did get those things and we did have those things, we might understand them in light of who he is and not worship them. Think about the Israelite people in captivity for 430 years. I mean, it really is a sobering thought. When we began to think about our lives and how maybe if we're struggling month to month for, for finances or looking for a job or, or maybe if someone suffers illness, we're like, if that goes on for two or three years, it feels completely unbearable. But imagine being born into something and living it all your life and dying in it. You might begin to wonder like David wondered and said in the Psalms, Lord, where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? Have you forsaken me? I'm pretty sure the Israelites, we, in fact, we know the Israelites cried that out because at the beginning of Exodus, it tells us that the Israelites cried out to God and he remembered them. He acted and he began to redeem them. The Israelites go from being a forgotten people to a favored people. And I'm, I was, I, when I did my notes this week, I really struggled with using the word favored because unfortunately, in, in, in circles and churches today, that word favored has been abused. And it stinks because it's a really great word. God uses it here in this text to describe how when the Israelites received the riches from the Egyptians that they were, because they were found favor. Favor is something that God assigns to us. And how does God assign favor to us as Christians? It's through his son, Jesus Christ, that his son lived the perfect life. He died the death that none of us could die. And he rose again on the third day. And for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we are favored because of what Christ has done for us. And that doesn't mean we're going to have the fancy car, the million dollars, the, the retirement fund that will never go away. Does, that doesn't, that's not being favored. In fact, that can be disfavor for some people who have those things and worship them. Amen? We know people like that. God gives us what we need, but to be favored is to be loved by God through Jesus Christ. We are not a forgotten people, and I know sometimes we have felt like I know we have had days where in which we wonder if God knows we exist. We were a month from returning home from deployment. Those of you who don't know, I was an army chaplain and I deployed to OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom in 09 and 10. 30 days. 30 days, your mind starts turning towards going home and seeing your family who you just ache to see. <laughs> In fact, some of our soldiers were leaning, thinking about going home so much that they weren't getting along very well. And so they have what they call sensing sessions where the chaplain's brought in and you sit down with the, the lower enlisted and they tell you how horrible their NCOs are, right? And how pathetic they are and how stupid they are and how, you know, they just, and sometimes they just need to get it out. They need somebody to talk to. And so I can't, I don't share anything that, that's said in those meetings and they just poured it out to me. And then you meet with the NCOs and they tell you how, then they get, they're in the middle, right? They, they, how stupid these privates are. They, they would just pull their heads out of their you-know-wheres. They would be so much better. And, and the officers, that they would stop acting so entitled, you know, and so, you know, you, you've got that. And then you meet with the officer that's like, you know, if everybody would just do what I say, we'd all get along, Right. And so you meet with these guys, and I remember sitting down with Charlie Company during that sensing session, can't even say that well, and there was a knock on the door of the tent. It was my sergeant, my chaplain assistant. He leans into my air, he said, we've got a catastrophic kill. My battalion had already lost... Two soldiers had had a wife of one of our soldiers commit suicide. 
It had a rough deployment. Anger, hate filled our soldiers' minds and hearts, having to now befriend the very people that on the previous deployment were the most wanted. At first, we thought the soldiers were missing because we couldn't find enough pieces of them to identify them. They were out on patrol, and a vehicle-borne IED drove right in the middle of our formation and detonated. I walked out of that tent and dropped to my knees, and I said, God, have you forgotten this? you've forgotten this. And I thank God that as I look back on those times and those seasons and those moments, I can now look back and not see his forgottenness, but his favor. He was taking our battalion. He was taking us Christians through exactly what we needed to go through. You see, Brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning, you are not forgotten. I don't care what situation you're in as far as understanding your forgotten. God is our big God. He is a huge God. I do care about where you're at. What I mean by saying that is, is this understanding that no matter how deep of sorrow, no matter how deep the hurt is, no matter how deep you're questioning God, he is present and with you and he loves you. How did the Israelites know that God favored them? Look at the end of this section of scripture. Starting in verse 20, And they moved on from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And at night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day or night. Okay. First picture, God is leading them so they can keep on the move, so they can keep traveling, so they know where to go. He's leading them, they'll know where to go. They're favored because they've got direction. They're favored because God is leading them. They're favored because God has a direction and purpose for their lives. The second thing is, they know they're favored. He repeats this in a different way. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them. So not only is God giving them direction, purpose, a way to go, but he is present with them. He does not depart from them. So whatever situation you're facing right now, whatever going on in your life, whether it's at school for our, for our kids in school in here, whether it's, you know, parenting situation, kids are lovely kids, kids are sorry sinner sucker kids, right? Whatever the parenting situation is right now, whatever we're experiencing in our marriages, Whatever we could be experiencing with our grandkids, with our neighbors, with our friends, with other church members, whatever we're experiencing, all those situations, God has not forgotten you. How do you know? Because guess what? As Christians, as children of God today, Jesus told us in John chapters 14 and 15, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get away. And I'm sure the disciples are going, no, right? That, that long, strenuous, no. But Jesus is saying, because this, the helper's got to come. You see, God is with us. We may not have a pillar of flyer. We may not have a pillar of cloud, but God is present with us. And I think sometimes we can get judgmental of the Israelites, right? How stupid were they? God was like there. I mean, okay, looking over here, where's God? There's God. Looking over here, where's God? There's God. Looking over here, where's God? There's God, right? And they're like, how could you act up when God is like right there? Brothers and sisters, let's go home and look in the mirror. The Holy Spirit, if you're a child of God, is right here. The presence of God in us. We are favored beyond measure as God is with us in every moment we go through. And we are not forgotten, but favored of God. How cool is that? I'm going to read some scripture passages, okay? And I'm telling you what, it's okay to get excited to think about this. Your identity is not a slave. Your identity is not the weak, the few. Your identity is not the forgotten. Your identity is conqueror, 
mighty, strong, many, and favored of God. Listen to the words of God. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, us, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Amen? Oh, come on, we gotta do better. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more now are we reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? Amen? Oh, come on now. Galatians 2.20, I'll keep going because the word of God is full of this. You might have to get loud to shut me up. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Oh, you're getting to it. All right. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, you didn't know. Oh, you were waiting for the rest of that one. I know. I tricked you. I tricked you. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Amen. What does this look like? What does this look like? If we have this identity, what does it look like to live this identity out in Jesus Christ? I will conclude with this, an excerpt from The Hiding Place. Corey Tenboom, upon coming home back to Harlem, she began, she went right back to it. She began finding people to hide until the end of the war. And Corey then began to travel throughout the broken land in Europe and tell people that they need not be bitter, that they need not be angry, but they need to forgive by the power of Jesus Christ. Corey was put to the ultimate test in his forgiveness. When one night in Munich, upon the conclusion of a service she led, she saw a gentleman standing at the back door. She writes, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and, and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people of Blomendal, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. 
I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not our forgiveness anymore than our goodness that the world's healing hinges upon, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the very love itself. This was possible for Corey Ten Boom to do this because who she was identified in. Corey Ten Boom's identity was Jesus Christ. She was his child. And because she was his child, she could forgive. That's what it looks like to be identified in Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like for, for us to have that soul identity in him and everything else is just ways in which to show everybody you're identified in Jesus. Your job isn't to be identified in. It's a way for you to show your identity in Jesus. Your family isn't to, you're not, husband, not my identity. Father, not my identity. But it's rather a way for which to show that I'm identified in Jesus Christ. Being a student, being an athlete, those are not your identities. Those are ways in which you can show others that you are identified in Jesus Christ, that you are a conqueror, that you are strong, that you are mighty in Jesus Christ. And, brothers and sisters, that you might understand that you are favored. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you have given us this incredible identity and that our life has direction. Our life has meaning. Our life has purpose because you are with us. May we delight to be identified as children of the Almighty God. In Jesus' name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.